David had six sons born to him when he was first anointed king when he was in Hebron. Among those six are Amnon, Absalom, and Adinojan. Then when he went to move to Jerusalem, he had 13 more sons. Five of them are Bathsheba and David's children, including the baby that died at seven days old and Solomon. Now the rest of the children, eight more, were born to his other wives. They're not all named and recorded, but most of those names are there. Now, of, David also had children with, uh, with uh, his concubines and um, other women who are unnamed. So, but of the 21 children that we know of that David had, we know the most about four of them. Anon, Tamar, Absalom, and Solomon. And we're going to look more closely at the story of Absalom and David, and also David's nephew, Joab, primarily through their relationships and what it reveals to us about David's family system. David is famously known as a man who was after God's own heart, regarded as a spiritual superhero. And I have to say, he was a terrible, terrible father and role model. Nathan told David, I think you've, I know that you've been in this uh, um, book um, through the summer, and I so admire your pastors for talking about these issues. But David told, um, Nathan told David, the prophet Nathan told David, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have de despised me and have taken the wife Uriah to be your wife. Thus the Lord says, Behold, I will raise up adversaries against you from your own house. Now this does not mean that God makes this happen, I don't think, but any good pastoral counselor mapping David's family system, and I consider God a very good pastoral counselor, can see disaster coming because of David's relationships with his children. David's behavior is a large factor in his son's and nephew's behavior. We have this confession of repentance from David. I think you've heard it uh, in prior weeks. Nathan said to David, the Lord, uh, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. But David did not repent his sins against his children. And his children had not put away his sins. God may forgive David, but David's children are still suffering from his neglect and poor role model behavior. And consequently, the sword just keeps coming until the day he dies. We hear very little about David's mother in scripture, but a word about her may give us some insight into David. What is implied about her is that she was most likely not the mother of David's six older brothers, making his brothers his half-brothers, nor is he the mother of his two younger sisters, who were more likely stepsisters. He is likely, she was likely neither Hebrew nor considered legitimate family according to Jewish law. 
But we do know that David took care of her. But this outsider role in his father's family and Jesse's family makes sense given his lonely life isolated as a shepherd, which kept him distant from his own father and half-brothers. And David's lack of family support when he was on the run from Saul. And David married for allies again and again and again. And when he wanted help with his leadership, he turned to his mother's side of the family, that is, to the family in Moab. So we suspect that David's father married a Moabite woman um, who, with two daughters after David's mother. Um, after he, I don't know what happened to her. She got set aside, I guess. So David is similar to his father. And David made his nephew, who is his sister, his stepsister's son, that's Joab, and he becomes the captain of his army. Joab literally fought his way into the position of commander of David's armies, always the first to strike, the first to advance on the enemy, and he was rewarded for his homicidal tendencies. Joab murdered his way into a retaining position. He is actually a lot like his uncle. Joab had two brothers, and one of his brothers was killed by a man named Abner, who was King Saul's cousin. And what is considered, he was killed though in what was considered a legitimate battle of war. He was killed, not considered murdered. However, Joab took revenge for his brother's death by murdering Abner which was essentially, um, David had said, don't do that. Well this, well, this would not be the last time that Joab ignores David's wishes not to murder and kill, as we'll soon see. Joab leads the assault on the fortress at Mount Zion, and he gets promoted to the rank of general, and he leads the army against other nations like the Ammons and, the, and, and Edom, he is also the man on the ground carrying out David's orders to murder Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. Joab liked battle. He liked the kill of war. He killed Abner, not really because of his brother, but because as Saul's coming, a cousin, um, who he, he fought alongside Saul. So he was going to David to um, ask for forgiveness, to be reconciled with David. But Joab killed Abner because an alliance with David, um, alliance between David and Abner threatened his position as a general. Joab kills Absalom, even though David says specifically not to. I think not because Absalom threatens David's rule, but because Absalom threatens Joab's position as general. And Joab kills Amasa, who is his cousin, another of David's nephews his other sister's son, who was promoted to captain after David, after Moab uh, murders Absalom. So David kind of replaces him, but Joab kills him to retain his power and position. So uh, Joab is a, is a murderer. Joab plays an interesting role in the uh, Davidic family system. We see family patterns for gaining and retaining power by really 
brilliant political plotting and murder. As the commander of David's forces during Absalom's rebellion, our text for today tells us a lot about Joab's role in this sad, sad story and sad, dysfunctional family. Absalom. Absalom is famous for his good looks, as his father was known for his good looks. But Absalom even more so because he's also known for his long, thick, luxuriant hair. Absalom had a sister named Tamara, Tamara, who was also very beautiful. Amnon, their older half-brother, Amnon is the, the oldest of David's son, lusted after his sister. When Tamar rebuffed his advances, he plotted and lied to have her come to his house where he raped her. After the rape, Anon put Tamara out of his house in disgrace, and when Absalom heard what happened, he took his sister in and took care of her, and she never leaves the house again. Absalom nurses a hatred of his half-brother Amnon, and David does nothing. David gets mad, but does, and he says nothing. David never intervenes. He never reaches out to Tamar. He never mediates the clash. You know is coming between Absalom and Amnon because it is Absalom's responsibility to offend his sister, especially if the father doesn't do it. So between Absalom and his brother Amnon, there is kindled a terrible feud which is quenched in blood. Every bit of skilled in uh, plotting a murder as his father taught him when he plotted the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Absalom invites Anon and all his brothers to a sheep shearing party. During the festivities when Amnon is drunk with wine, in the presence of all David's sons, Absalom signals his servants to kill Amnon. When this happens, the brothers panic, they spring onto their mules and they flee. Out of fear of his father, Absalom runs away to his mother's family in Gashar, where his grandfather is the king. And he lives there for three years. During that time, scripture says that David longed to go out to Absalom, if only he had. But he actually does nothing. Through his cousin Joab, he intercedes on Absalom's uh, behalf, and finally he's permitted to return to Jerusalem. However, however, even then, Absalom is not permitted in David's presence and has to live in a house on his own. He lived this way, never contacting or being contacted by his father for two years. And after two years, David agrees to see him. The two-year wait seems to make Absalom's hatred for his father grow. He plots to dethrone him and seize the kingdom from him. If we were to do a diagram of David's family system, uh, <laughs> we would see rapists, liars, and especially murderers. We would see plotting and scheming. We would see war and rebellion. We would see womanizers, and we would see betrayal. And we would also see God in the midst of this big, messy, awful, dysfunctional family. When Absalom is back on terms with his father, 
he gets himself made the judge in Jerusalem. And they do like the long con. They like plan like years. And so he, he gets himself to be the judge in Jerusalem and gives out promises of what he would do if he were king. And after four years of this, he talks David into allowing him to go to Hebron and the place where David was anointed king and where he has secretly arranged to have himself proclaimed king. He goes south to Hebron with 200 of David's military force. In Hebron, he sounds the trumpet call. Others who want to join Absalom's rebellion against David join him. David has now been king for 37 years. And even Ahithophel, who was a counselor for David, he declares his support of Absalom and gave the rebellion the weight of his name and experience. Now, when the aged King David heard all this news, his spirit was crushed, and he prepares to crush the rebellion. As Absalom's followers grew, David began to fear for his life. His, he gathers his entire household, all his servants and followers, and flees Jerusalem. However, he leaves behind concubines and informers to spy on um, Absalom. David leaves Jerusalem with 600 men to go against Absalom's 200 but growing men. As they march, they are mourning and weeping. Anticipatory grief, you would call this. He's anticipating, he's anticipating the death of his son. He's crying already for what is about to happen to Absalom and his followers. They passed over the brook that took them to the road that leads into the wilderness. And they met, there they were met by uh, Zadok and uh, another priest and, and, and their sons. And there was a contingent of Le Le uh, Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant. But David refused to let the sacred shine come with them. He refused to let the presence of the Lord be in this battle. And he ordered the Ark back to Jerusalem. Then David continues on his journey up the mountain and he's barefooted, walking barefooted with his mantle drawn over his head and all the people are doing the same and they're all weeping, hiding their faces. Now the bitter news comes that the counselor uh, Ahithophel has joined Absalom and it's just sorrow upon sorrow for David. If only, if only this wasn't happening. But David, he doesn't stop. He is already crying for what is going to happen. He continues to advance his army to crush his son's rebellion. When David and his company reach the top of the mountain, they are met by Hashal, who has also come with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And David confides his plan to him. So David has a plan for this. He sends Hashal back, back to Jerusalem to pretend to be one of Absalom's followers. And he tells him that he needs to convince Absalom not to do anything that the counselor says because he knows that that'll be effective. He has to get him to uh, not follow that guidance. So uh, this is what Ashai does. He returns to Jerusalem, he enters the city and uh, about the same time that Absalom arrives. When Absalom enters Jerusalem, the first thing he does is he, um, to solidify his position, um, he goes and moves into David's uh, house, the house he was uh, denied entry to when he came back to Jerusalem. And the other thing he does is sleep with his concubines, 
who actually have no say in this political sexual conquest. Then he lays uh, plans to immediately pursue and attack David's forces, but the idea was abandoned because Hashai is successful as a spy in getting him not to do that. And the delay allows David to muster his troops and mount an attack in Jerusalem. But David doesn't take part in it. He tells his general, do not to, to, to deal gently with his son Absalom. All the troops heard this. Absalom, as you know, was, was, was riding under a tree. His beautiful hair became entangled in the branches, and he is unhorsed. His cousin Jayad finds him hanging from the tree by his hair, and he kills him. The rebellion is crushed, and David returns to Jerusalem. David mourns deeply. His grief is so great that the victory seems hollow. They actually return to Jerusalem in shame. Absalom's murderer, Joab, rebukes David for this unseemly behavior of mourning. And David later replaces him as commander with his nephew, Amas, who, as I said, Joab later murders. Near the end of David's reign, Joab and other commanders begin questioning David's judgment. Joab offers his alliance to David's oldest, um, eldest son, Abdonajai, rather than to the promised king, Solomon. Old and on the brink of death, there is more political backbiting, plotting, and murder in David's family. David tells Solomon to kill Joab because of his past betrayals and murders that he's guilty of. So Solomon orders his death, giving the order to another commander who carries it out. And it just so happens that um, Joab flees to the tent of the tabernacle. Basically, he flees to what would be church. And, um, and he's killed in church, in, in, in front of the tabernacle of Yahweh, in the sight of the tabernacle. There's no sanctuary. There's no safe place in this family system. And also, Solomon kills his brother, Adonijah, who was attempting the coup d'etat against Solomon. So while it's true that scripture says David was a man after God's own heart, he was also a man who had no scruples about killing he, and also passing down that trait to his sons. There's a common hermeneutical um, approach that says people in the Bible are either good or they're bad, not both. They're not complicated, they're not complex, they're not in need of redemption. They are not to make us uneasy or uncomfortable or question their sanity and morals. Yet the Bible records people, bad people doing bad things, bad people doing good things, good people doing bad things, and good people doing good things. It's not easy, and really, we like it easy. We like our categories of human beings, especially our biblical uh, heroes, to be easy to categorize. Instead, I wonder what we can learn from them about our human condition. Much has been said about David's neglect of Absalom in, his, in this sad incident. It's possible that the parental responsibility is a lesson we can take from this episode, 
but scripture does not exactly express that or teach that here. We do know that David did nothing about Amnon's rape of Tamar, although he knew about it. If David had intervened as a father on Tamar's behalf, would Absalom have taken it upon himself to mete out justice? And what is the impact on Absalom's soul of carrying hatred for so many years against his brother and his father? I don't know the answer to these questions, but it seems that David's inaction had a, a terrible effect on the lives of his children. And David even had a small part in what happened to his daughter Tamar, because again, good plotters. Anon uh, said, I'm gonna pretend to be sick, and I'm so sick my father's gonna come visit me. David comes to visit him, and Anon asks his father to tell his sister Tamar to come and cook for him and feed him. So obeying her father, she goes, and that's when she's raped by her brother. We know David is furious about it, but he doesn't do anything about it. And seven years later, Absalom is seeking to usurp his father's throne and is murdered by another family member in the process. What can we learn from this sad story? One, I think, is it's important to respond to violence against women with integrity and justice. In this family, we see rape twice, leading to murder. David murders Uriah, and Absalom murders Amnon. We see children die. Bathsheba's seven-day-old son, Amnon, Absalom, just to name a few. The story of Absalom is a sad story. It's a sad story for David as well, because he lost his son that he loved. If only, if only he had been a different kind of father. If only, so many if onlys. David is a biblical hero because ultimately Jesus was born as a descendant of David. And looking at this family system, you can notice that Jesus was subject to political assassination as well, which is so common in David's lineage. Yet Jesus does not plot, murder, retain power by violence. Jesus changes the, fam the dysfunctional family. He changes the family structure and story. It's clear we, ha we have a positive look at David because Jesus was so effective in changing that family story. It's clear that David is basically a killing machine. Bears, lions, giants, men, tens of thousands of men. Saul has killed his thousands and David is ten thousands. A more complex set of events is going on because for one thing, there is constant state of warfare in Israel between, and warfare between David and his children. Jesus is a peace machine, I would say, a love machine. You know that song, I'm just a love machine and I don't work for nobody but you. <laughs> Jesus is a love machine, a peace machine, a healing machine, and he has David's zeal and, and he has David's love for God, but not David's bloodthirst. So where are we in this story? How many of us have been or are now being affected by or involved in rape and murder? In the church, we would never, I think, confess to these crimes or confess to how these um, experiences are actually in our lives, in the lives of our children. We would never do it which is sad to me, but there's some things we simply don't go to church and talk about. 
It's a delicate question because I'm sure some of you are in fact still affected by events involving rape and murder. I mean, the nine murdered in South Carolina are still haunting me. So here is the good news. If you have the capacity to change your dysfunctional family patterns, do it. The picture of David in the book of Samuel may, may seem a far cry from the pious individual with whom the tradition has associated him. And it's certainly a far cry from what we might imagine a person to be like who becomes a model for a later messianic, messianic figure. Yet there is an important story here. The sword shall never depart from your house, it says in 2 Samuel. That is, if we do nothing about the swords in our house, they will never depart. David's relationship with his children and Absalom in particular can be a mirror in which we examine our own family relationships and social relationships and patterns. We see patterns emerge in David and his children. I ask you to see also the patterns in our own families and communities that we can change for the better. We have to face our relationship truths. Racism, sexism, classism, heterosexism, they lead to violence in our relationships and in our families and in our society. And when we see race-related murders as we've seen so many lately, it's not an accident of faith. It's our family system to murder. So change the story. Resolve, we can resolve our conflicts. We can confront injustice. We can contain unacceptable behavior. We can welcome back the loss. We can talk it out. We can take responsibility. We can be honest with ourselves and recognize our own contribution to our family problems. We need to get to know one another. I mean, really, really get to know people, a wide variety of people, people who are different from you. We are empowered by a God in Christ who shows us how to change the human story. We can be a part of that change. And may God have mercy on us all. Amen. Let us now respond and rise in body or spirit to sing hymn number 775, I Want Jesus to Walk With Me. <laughs> <laughs> 